You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to the Spear MWS podcast on the combat experience. My guest on this episode is Dylan Ferguson. Regular listeners might recognize his name and his voice. He was a guest on a previous episode a few months ago, uh, but he's here to tell a, uh, a very different story from a different uh, time in his Army career. Dylan, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me back. So you've had a uh, an interesting and, and frankly pretty remarkable career path. Um, when when we had you on a while back, you shared a story from a deployment when you were serving as an Apache aviator. We mentioned then that you had also flown Chinooks. Uh, you've spent some time in the in the fixed wing aviation community in the Army and elsewhere. Uh, on this this episode, you're going to share a story from 2012 when you were part of the brigade aviation element. Uh, and working primarily with small uh, unmanned aircraft systems. I wonder if we can kind of start by just giving our listeners a sense of how you sort of uh, made that jump uh, in your in your career. Yeah, absolutely. So every maneuver brigade in the Army has what's called a brigade aviation element. It's a six-man team that's part of the brigade staff. Uh, you have a major, a captain, a warrant officer, and then three uh, NCOs. Uh, we had a, an air traffic controller and then two um, flight operations personnel that were there with us. And that six-man cell, we worked very closely with the G3 Air. We're not the G3 Air, but we worked closely with them. The fires cell, air, your artillery guys, air defense artillery, um, air force. When we were deployed in the talk there, we had JTAC sitting beside of us. And so we're tech, we're part of the brigade staff, but we're also we're the SMEs for aviation. Um if you get a good mix in the BAE, uh, that's ideal. And like our major was a Chinook guy. Um, the captain was a Blackhawk guy. I was an Apache guy. Um, and basically, uh, these these cells can be a little notorious to, to field because, or to get people to go to them because it's, a non, it's generally a non-flying assignment. So no one wants to stop flying. And they're especially hard to fill in the 82nd Airborne because no one wants to, or very few pilots want to jump. You know, you're one injury away from kind of ruining your flight career. So uh, they were notoriously difficult to keep manned at 100%. Um, I got a phone call. They asked me if I'd be willing to go do it. I said yes. Uh, very few times in my career I've said no to opportunities that have been presented to me. Uh, and so I, after that first deployment as Apache guy, I did some time in the cab. And then I uh, PCS'd right down the street to 1st Brigade Combat Team 82nd. Uh, which is the, the 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment. 
Um, when I got there, uh, I, was, so I was a tactical operations officer uh, for aviation. So we deal with you know, threat analysis. Uh, we dealt with personnel recovery, uh, mission planning, things like that. Uh, so on an infantry brigade, I was able to bring my personnel recovery experience uh, to the field. And, and I, I could do a whole podcast on PR, personal recovery, but I would leave that to a seer, like an Air Force seer guy. So I, I did that with them. But then I also noticed um, these small UAVs that we had. We had the Ravens. Uh, and I started digging through the pubs and the regulations. And I realized these Raven operators, even though they're, you know, it might be an 11 Bravo, you know, 18 year old private, they're supposed to get annual evaluations. Uh, like an aviator does, they're supposed to have flight records, like whole flight record folders. And, and wow. we have what's called an air crew training program. Uh, we have air crew training programs in the rotary wing, fixed wing side. And uh, there's there's entire army you know, uh, publications and regulations that cover how to run an air crew training program. So I, I took this to some of the brigade command elements and to some of the battalion commanders and I said, hey, look at this ATP thing. Do you guys have a clue what this is? Are you guys doing that? And they all kind of looked at me and they were like, no, we, we've never heard of this. And I was like, well, you're supposed to be doing it. And I was like, lucky for you, I'm an aviator. I understand how these things work. And um, and so I kind of wrapped my arms around that. That kind of became my pet project to build up our, our air crew training program in Devil Brigade and, uh, and really get our UAV program uh, take it further than what we had there. When I rolled in, we had about 12 operators, I think, and about 12 analog uh, Raven systems. Uh, when I PCS'd out of the brigade two years later, we had about 70 operators on the ATP. Uh, we had multiple master trainers and we had 36 unmanned systems between the Pumas and the, the Ravens. So um, that was not all me, uh, but I definitely was there trying to facilitate things, trying to get new equipment, get people trained. And, uh, and that really... Uh, that was really cool to see our program grow that much over two years, especially leading into this deployment. Um, and the UAVs had a stigma uh, when I got there because everybody uh, who had been done like an Iraq deployment, they just thought of the Raven as, oh, that thing that somebody lost, you know, a few blocks away. And then we had to send out a patrol to go get it. And one guy got shot. And so everybody had a very negative stigma about Ravens and they wanted nothing to do with them. And so I really made that my personal goal to change that mindset when we deployed. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because that's come up, uh, I think, several times during episodes of The Spear that I've recorded. Um, people talking about, you know, we know the Raven has certain capabilities, but if it goes down and we have to go get it because it's a sensitive item, that might put soldiers at risk. Um, on top of that, if we can't recover it, there's a big investigation and it's just not worth the hassle. It's too much of a headache. And so we'd rather just kind of leave it home, uh, leave it back in the box. Uh, you, you said that you kind of worked to change that mindset, uh, but more broadly, did you see sort of a change in the culture surrounding the usage of, uh, of these small UAVs? I would like to think so by the end of it, uh, definitely. Now, you know, obviously, uh, I think sometimes that those culture changes only last as long as uh, those commanders are there until the next commander rolls in. And <clears throat> so you need that continuity. Uh, I, I hope my, some of my master trainers kept the, the program going and kept uh, and kept reinforcing those positive things. But um, I know some of the some of the products that we produced uh, out of that deployment uh, lingered for years to come. I, I had a buddy went to JRTC and he was like, hey. I saw this PowerPoint and we were briefed at JRTC and then I saw your name at the bottom of it. And I was like, oh yeah, we made that, you know, four years ago uh, when we were deployed. So I know, I know certain things had a lasting um, legacy, but um, you know, like I said, I, I, any, any good command climate things only as good as, you know, 
that that commander's there until they leave and you know hopefully that continues so so it seems to me that there's sort of a cost benefit analysis at play here when it comes to using something like the raven um in a unit where you know personnel sort of focus on the costs and the costs are real if it if it you know if the aircraft goes down you have to recover it and the risk to soldiers and the investigation and all of the uh that hassle like i said but at the same time maybe the the flip side is that um there's there's uh, insufficient awareness of the benefits of just what uh, capabilities you know a raven say brings to the fight so in order to sort of influence this cultural change was it was it you know, enhancing an awareness of, of those capabilities on the kind of the benefit side of the equation? It, yes, that, I think that was a big part of it. And even just looking at the cost side of it, um, I, I stayed very well connected with a uh, project management UAS. And then, um, while we were deployed, I got a civilian, a contractor, uh, UAS SME, who was kind of attached to us there in, uh, Gosney and, uh, and, uh, Pat Baker was the name. And yeah, and when he got there, he, uh, he did a great job of helping uh, connect us with higher headquarters. And some of those things, like, like the wings on some, they're styrofoam wrapped in Kevlar. And they would they were expendable. Yeah, they were designed to break. They were designed to fall apart to protect the payload. And so I think, you know, yeah, there would be people get worried about banging them up. And, you know, we were working the, the project management office. They're like, oh, yeah, you need new wings? Cool. Here's new wings. And, you know, no, no flipples, no really anything crazy on paperwork. It was just a... I made a phone call and I got new wings. Uh, and I think so having junior officers, junior leaders there to facilitate it, not just, you know, private Smith, uh, at the squad level trying to, he can't, you know, engage with the project management office to get new equipment. But once you have some of the, those middlemen there to kind of facilitate that, um, it, it became, people got less worried about things breaking because they knew that, Hey, chief could help us fix it. Uh, and then like you were saying, the capability side of it, um, so when we got there, we got to Ghazni, uh, not without getting too far ahead. We got to Ghazni. I started doing some training flights and training missions. We actually got a mobile training team to come create new operators there. And uh, and I started, during our training missions, I would start identifying things. I'd see suspicious activity on a training flight. And I would just kind of record it, bring it back, make a storyboard, and push that up to the S2 or push that up to that battalion command team. And they would see, they would, oh, well, that's really cool. Hey, we want more of that. And so I would, I would just kind of use my experience and especially as the Apache pilot, because then I, I knew what to look for. I knew how to develop a situation. I knew how to utilize the sensors to, to get the best angle, to get the best, uh, you know, picture. And so I'd send all that up and then they, they would get excited about the products that I was providing them and they wouldn't want more. And so I would use that as kind of the, the trigger. Okay, well, you want more of that? Cool. Let's buy more systems. Let's get more of your soldiers trained so that they can go do this and you have that organic or that uh, that capability organic to their unit and it wasn't just something they had to call me to come help them with so you've mentioned both the puma and the raven i think most people are probably generally more aware of the raven uh, but i wonder if you can talk a little bit about the the differences between the two and then also just what capabilities uh each aircraft brings um yeah uh, and honestly so the newer ravens I think the newest version of the Raven, they both have their pros and cons. The Raven's small, it's light. I, you could launch it one-handed. There would be times I'd step out on the ramp of an MRAP and I could just chuck it with one hand and and then pop back in. And it was simple. The Puma is much more heavy, uh, which when you're in an environment like Afghanistan, you know, without turning this into a lecture on uh, aerodynamics and, you know, the, the, the 
fundamentals of flight and what, you know, what makes lift happen. Uh, when you're in a high, hot, heavy situation, whether it's a helicopter, airplane, or UAV, uh, it doesn't want to fly very well. So in Afghanistan, things like the Raven are very advantageous because it's lighter, um, but the Puma has more because it's heavier. Uh, it's got a bigger battery. That's part of it. So it can stay in the air longer. Uh, the Puma is also quieter. Um, there would be times I would want to use the Raven just for disruptive op. We would take uh, indirect fire from a neighboring village. I'd go fly a Raven over it. I'd bring it down as low as I was comfortable doing. And I'd just take the throttle to 100%. I mean, it's unarmed. But the average Afghani who's lobbing mortars, he just knows something's in the air. And so I would just do it just to mess with them when we, at our normal like peak time. When you say as low as you're comfortable with, how low <laughs> I saw is that? Uh, with the Raven, I would bring it down to, you know, maybe a hundred, 150 feet, which I wouldn't recommend to people if they're oh. just like going out there and, um, you know, cause it, obviously the lower you get, if you lose the signal something, you run a risk of, you know, uh, crashing it into the trees, but I, I would bring it down. I'd keep an eye on the signal and that kind of thing. And, um, but I would just do it just to, again, and they do take in calculated risks, but, uh, I would, I would do that as disruptive operations. Whereas the Puma is really quiet and I could get pretty low. And, um, and honestly, people wouldn't even know that we were there. Sometimes I was, I was worried about looking down when I was looking at the image, I was trying to make sure my shadow, the shadow of the air vehicle didn't like cross over the target because I was afraid I'd burn myself that way. If they saw like a a shadow crossover top of where they were sitting. Um, it was a really, really good system. Uh, now they've upgraded the, the payloads and all these things over the years. Uh, the Raven actually has a gimbal payload now, uh, similar to what the Puma had, um, and so I haven't flown the gimbal uh, Raven, but I've heard uh, from people uh, that I still talk to that it's a, uh, it's a very impressive system now. Okay. So you mentioned that you were part of the brigade aviation element, which is part of the uh, brigade staff, uh, which, you know, for many listeners will conjure up images of, of, you know, sort of being tied to a desk in a, in a talk someplace, but the story you're going to tell you were out, um, out on a patrol. Did you have many opportunities to do that? Uh, not regularly, but every now and then I'd say maybe a couple times a month. Um, so yes, I was sitting in the talk, uh, and my major actually, you know, we were short staffed. The major got pulled in to be the chops, the, you know, the current ops officer, the, my captain became the battle captain. And so really I became kind of the de facto brigade aviation officer on many days. Okay. Um, and so I would, I would sit there and man the desk. And so I, uh, 12 hours a day for a nine month deployment. And, uh, so I was looking for any opportunity I could. It's like, I'd rather be out on a foot patrol than sitting at this desk for another day. So, um, so it it was kind of circumstance. Um, so that civilian I had, uh, Pat was living in a transient, uh, tent that we had, uh, on the fob and he ran it and there was some, an an infantry squad that was there. He was a former Marine. So he just immediately started clicking with them. Um, they kind of befriended each other. We trained some up, some of their dudes up as, uh, Puma guys. So then I started working with them that way. And that's, like I said, I, I started flying training missions. I saw a couple things. I was experimenting at the time with different way. You have the ground control station, right? The, the antenna and the battery, the computer that you're using. And so I was trying to experiment with how do I take a ground control station, and put it in a rucksack. And, uh, and so one day uh, I found some stuff. I showed it to this infantry platoon. I said, Hey, look, at, look at these photos I grabbed of the suspicious activity. And, uh, I packed up my little prototype backpack and I, I went on the patrol with them and we, uh, they knocked on a door. There was a squirter off the objective. And again, as an Apache pilot, I knew how to find, follow, do all that stuff. I talked the ground element onto it. 
Uh, not a shot was fired. We rolled up this dude. And then I pushed that storyboard up and then everybody just kind of went bonkers. They said, man, this is awesome. We want more of that. So after that success, then they started inviting me out and they're like, Hey, you know, do you want to, we're going to go on this mission here. We're going to go on this mission there. And, uh, and then I'd occasionally go out with them. Um, so that's kind of the, like I said, it was all circumstance, happenstance, meeting some people. And then it just, and then before I knew it, I was rolling out NIMRAPs, uh, and going with them on uh, these uh, patrols. Uh, so the, the story I want to tell you today, so this was on June 3rd, 2012. So I was uh, with Cold Steel Platoon, and they were like the brigade uh, PSD, the personal security uh, detachment there. Uh, we had them on FOB Warrior with us. And um, and so they go out on these patrols. And there's this one area, and they call it, we called it the playground. Um, just every time we went into there, they would take contact. Every time that they would go in there, they'd take contact. Um at 20 or in 2012 and just kind of backing up a little bigger picture, the Polish had controlled all of Ghazni and um, you know, I wouldn't say anything ill against our partner nations, but they, they never really pushed off a highway one. And so the Polish at that, basically they moved back up to Ghazni city proper. And so first brigade combat team was really covering from the border of RC East and South that border up to the city. And our objective was to pretty much open up, uh, kind of get off of highway one to get out there, disrupt the Taliban supply lines uh, to really disrupt their freedom of maneuver, things that they had had there um, for the last several years. So whenever we pushed off of highway one, you know, we, we would get into contact. There'd be uh, IEDs in the villages and things like that. It, it, we really kind of, the Taliban hadn't had anybody come into their backyard uh, so deep before in that area. And so we, um, we really kind of mixed it up for them. So back to June 3rd. Uh, so they're going to the playground. They invite me along and say, Hey, we're going out. I said, uh, cool. Yeah. I'd love to go along. And, um, I loaded up, uh, I had my Puma actually loaded up, uh, in a bag, like on the side of the MRAP. And, um, and we rolled out there. I took, like I said, I was experimenting with different ways to configure the ground control station. And so on this one, I had a ground control station set up in the MRAP. So I actually had the antenna up on top and I had the wires all routed and I had my computer set up in the back. And uh, we got out to the, the playground and they um, we stopped, they dismounted, we did a halt. And the first thing I would do is get the UAV in the air. So we take it out, assemble it, get it all set up and uh, and launch it so that I could get set up, get into an orbit. Again, I'm thinking about Apache tactics. I want to get overhead. Whereas we would like scout a landing zone for, you know, an air assault and make sure everything's good. I would get the Puma up and I would look for anything before they even started moving. And so I'd put the, the UAV over where we thought they were going to take contact from. The problem was, and what I started learning as I went on some of these missions is that while it's easy for an Apache, maybe to hand something off to a JTAC or especially to another Apache, it's harder when you've got a infantry platoon dismounted moving across, uh, you know, 300 meters of open fields. How do I convey targets to them? You know, I can't just pass them a 10 digit grid while they're in the middle of a movement across that. So um, that was one of the difficult things um, I would, I was up on the net. So I was able to try to, if I saw kind of a spot report, I would pass it to them. Uh normal kind of activity whenever we rolled into a village you know you'd always start the warning signs started going off you know women and kids leaving the village you know everybody in mass um 
other things, dudes rolling up on motorcycles, wearing all black, all, all the kind of warning signs of, okay, hey, this is probably going to pop off. Um, it was all starting to happen. Um, I'm also, again, from previous deployment experience, I'm looking at some of the buildings. I'm trying to identify uh, landmarks and features. I'm also looking for things like um, speakers on the side of the buildings, because even in a small rural village, I know generally if there's speakers on the side of a building, odds are that's probably a mosque. And so I can start to identify um, cultural landmarks, things we just need to be aware of um, if we get into a firefight. And I saw a couple guys get up on top of the uh, the mosque and lay down in the prone. Again, you know, this is very suspicious, but no, so nothing happening yet. Um, the the tick popped off with those guys on top of the roof, um, and and like I said, the the cameras were really good on the UAV. I could actually see. The muzzle flat. I could see the the, the little plumes of smoke and uh, and dust popping up from the rooftop, and and pretty much as soon as I saw it and was getting ready to call it, they obviously know that they the rounds are coming towards them. They they knew they called a tick, and then they uh, sprinted across this uh, 300 meters or so of uh, open field to close with and return fire uh, on this village. So the maneuver elements now moving towards the village. Uh, they're returning fire. It wasn't long before the dudes on top of the roof, uh, just went down the ladders, hopped onto their motorcycles, you know, kind of shoot and scoot, uh, tactics that they were using, hopped on the motorcycles and took off out of village. Good thing is I got the UAV up already. I'm already watching all this. So I was able to follow and, uh, and track them out of the village. Uh, the MRAPs started opening up at this time. You know, we had Mark 19s and 50 cals. Um, they identified them. I was able to confirm you know, that, the, yep, those are the bad guys. And, uh, and so they opened up, uh, they already could see the target, which was nice. Uh, and then I was able to adjust, help the best I could adjust fires. Cause I, again, I'm watching all this, the UAV is following them. I can see the rounds impacting around them. I can see the Mark 19 rounds impacting. I can tell whether they're long or short and doing the best I can to help adjust fire. I mean, they're in the middle of, they're in the middle of the fight. So I'm not trying to micromanage by any means, but just kind of giving them some basic feedback. Um, where everything went sideways was, so now these MRAPs are in pursuit of these guys, they're engaging. And then the lead MRAP, they got pretty far away from the rest of us in their pursuit. They hit an IED, uh, in the village. And that really just kind of took the air out of everything once uh, that vehicle was disabled. So at that point, now everything kind of shifts focus. We're now in a recovery kind of mode. My MRAP was one of the closest ones. So we immediately just put the gas to it and try to get to the site as fast as we can. Was the Puma still up in the air? The Puma is still up in the air. So I, I immediately focus in and there's a way you can put it into a loiter mode. And I, I pretty much told the Puma to hang out. I can even tell it to come back to me and, and loiter. And so I just put it into loiter mode so I could just go completely hands off. Um, I, I was getting thrown around back there because I was just kind of, little sprawled out, kind of had my little nest and I was working from, and now we're, you know, we're flooring it in this MRAP and I hit the ceiling at one point cause I wasn't buckled in. So now I'm trying to, trying to get buckled in, trying to keep the computer from flying all over the place. And so I, I wanted to not worry about the UAV. Um, we got there, the crew called that they were okay. So no one was killed. Um, so that was obviously a huge blessing, but they, you know, we still had a disabled vehicle right in the middle of this village. 
So my vehicle gets there. And, um, at that point, you know, the guys, uh, the guys on the motorcycles had gone so far away. I couldn't really get the Puma that further out to continue to follow them. Like I said, wasn't really even our top concern at that point. It wasn't to go find these guys. It was to protect the friendlies. Um, and unfortunately I also had a computer kind of error at that point and I lost all the video and I lost all the, the metadata, uh, kind of just crashed. And so I lost the first segment of uh, a footage from that day and I was like, okay, well it's fine. You know, we just need to get these dudes and get out of here. Um, I, I brought the UAV back in, I landed it in the field. Everything was kind of calm. Everybody was, um, you know, feeling pretty good that our guys were all right. Uh, brought the UAV back in, landed it and I put it away. Uh, it was always kind of weird on some of these patrols. Cause if I wasn't flying the UAV, I was just another dude out there with a the rifle. So, um, I'm certainly not an infantryman and uh, I mean, I wouldn't dare, you know, try to go clear rooms with these guys, but I mean, we're in the middle of something and I'm a guy with a rifle. So I could do, you know, I would perform the basic of soldier tasks, like pull security. So landed that I helped pull security. Um, and then Sergeant Sutton, uh, the platoon Sergeant, he started taking some maneuver elements to go try to take the initiative back and to push back into the village. Um, I would highly recommend there's a, there's a documentary about all this that has a helmet cam footage and interviews from all these guys. Uh, it's called a, uh, my fighting season. It's a mini series. And this, this battles, uh, covered in episode one, but, uh, so Sergeant Sutton goes back out to take the initiative. Um, and so there I am just kind of hanging out at the MRAP, no poom in the air, pulling security. Um, everything was kind of fine for a while. Uh, but then eventually, uh, our maneuver elements kind of overextended themselves. They got a little far away. The enemy maneuvered back in on us and they set up a kind of a 270 degree ambush on us, um, kind of surrounded us from most sides. And then they started opening up. Uh, I remember that, that first mortar that came in and hit the compound right behind where the MRAP was disabled. And we kind of knew, okay, hey, this is starting to pick back up again. And then uh, we had some very close calls uh, with RPGs, um, light machine gun fire. Uh, and then it, it started to started to increase pretty rapidly. Uh, I think one, I'm not sure how much they could tell that we had overexerted ourselves and pushed too much of our force away from the disabled vehicle. And if they were just taking advantage of that, or if it's just kind of just naturally how it happened. But um, that was the the objective of our mission just kind of slowly started changing from going out pressing the initiative to now we're in a recovery mode to now we're in a very defensive posture um guys were taking up uh, fighting positions in um the carezes well collapsed in carezes little water um kind of canals uh, i was using my, the mrap as cover um and so it, it kind of sucked there for a little while and then um sergeant sutton got on the radio he wanted the puma back in the air yeah, well, I wanna, sorry, I, I want to ask you about that because, you know, once once you you hear that they want the puma back in the air, uh, you know, you sort of know what to do. Uh, in that period before that, though, while you're playing security, I envision this sort of you know set of circumstances where maybe your your focus there are competing demands for your attention. One is, you know, on your rifle and your sectors of fire and the task at hand of pulling security. Um, the other is okay, how do I get this vehicle back up in the air? You know, where, where are your sort of priorities and your focus during that time? 
for me personally at that time, <laughs> there was no question in my mind, uh, I should get the Puma in the air because <laughs> Um, that's, I mean, that's as a warrant officer, you know, a tactical technical expert. And at that time, that's, that's what I was an expert in. I'm not an expert, um, at being an infantryman. So I was like, well, I can definitely help. Um, you know, I was, if I could influence it in, in the way that I was trained to influence the fight, then that's the way I was going to do, um, complete, uh, a different mission I was on. I mean, the first time that ever happened to me, that whole, you know, rifleman first concept, you know, the first time I ever dismounted with these guys on a patrol, you know, one of the guys looked at me and said, Hey chief, you can, you can hang out in the MRAP if you want. And I was like, Oh, well, why are you all dismounting? I was like, well, this is an IED hotspot. So if the MRAP gets hit with an IED, you know, we all want to be like, not in it, you know, they want to be out. I was like, Oh, well, <laughs> it sounds like I want to be out there with you guys. So that was the first time I ever kind of ran into that of, no, I don't want to sit inside this thing. Uh, but at that time, yeah, on, on June 3rd, um, I definitely, I realized my value could be brought to the fight by doing what I'm best at, which is, you know, at that point, uh, piloting an unmanned system. So, so I immediately was, all right, all right, let's get this thing back in the air. And you had to do this, you had to get it back up in the air under fire. Yeah. And so we had three guys, we had three guys uh, on the patrol that day who were qualified to use the system. We had myself, um, uh, Sergeant Martinez, who was in one of the maneuver elements. So he was actually out. So he was unavailable. And then Sergeant Matek, and Matek was the, uh, his MRAP was the one that was hit with the IED. So Matek at this time, he's in one of the Carezes. He's got an IV, uh, yeah, he's got an IV in his arm. Uh, he was being assessed for MTBI. Um, so he was, he was okay, but he'd still, I mean, he just got hit with an IED. Uh, the Puma is really a two-man, well, really any UAV, but specifically the Puma is a two-man launch uh, process. You have one person that's actually throwing it, and then you have another person that has to operate the hand controller. Uh, kind of the joystick. It's like a it's like a PlayStation controller with a screen. Um, and so the guy with the controller, he's the one that's controlling the throttle. He's the one that's kind of pitching it up. And and then the other guy has to go out there and actually chuck the thing. Um, so right now it was just me by myself. Uh, I grab, I grab a there was I think I think it was a mortarman. Uh, I honestly he was in the enabler MRAP with me, and I want to say he was a mortar guy private first class. I couldn't have been more than 19, you know, and I just kind of grab him like, Hey man. And I, I hand him this PlayStation controller and I'm like, you know, like, you play video games. I'm like, look, I need you to press up on this. That's a throttle. After I let go of this thing, I want you to try to pull back on the joystick and try to get it into the air. And I'm like, okay, cool. Got it. Good. And then I run out under fire to try to launch this. And I'm kind of screaming at him, trying to talk him through it while I'm launching it. And, uh, and so I take off, I run, I throw, and it, it almost got airborne, but it just, it didn't, it kind of petered out. It kind of floated along the ground and then it crashed right in the middle of this big open field where that's in between us and the tree lines and the villages that we're taking fire from. So now I'm kind of really in a pinch because the UAV is out in the middle of this completely un or open area. Um, and I, I love it in the documentary, the helmet cam footage from one of the guys in the, in the, the fighting positions. He's like, does that idiot know we're in a firefight? And I'm like, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> and so, um, so, and the other thing is, um, like a good train, again, a trained vehicle operator, uh, would know to cut, if it, he knows it's not going to launch, you know, you cut the engine that way it doesn't burrow into the ground as the propellers are spinning, you banging up the propeller, that kind of thing. So I kind of just tossed this to a, you know, a private who'd never held one before and, and it didn't work. So I was like, all right. 
Um, I take off and honestly, kind of like our last podcast of like, you know, talking about the risk versus reward and, you know, bravery versus stupidity. I just, I really, I was like, I got to get this thing. We got to get in the air. And I just took off. I sprinted. Uh, luckily I was doing long distance running at the time, uh, in my personal time, I, I took off, scooped up the UAV, scooped up the parts and then just took off and then just came running back to the MRAP. Uh, by the time I got back to the MRAP, uh, Matek, uh, my operator had been hit with the IED. Uh, he had ripped his IV out of his arm and he came running up to the MRAP with me. He's like, Hey chief, let's go. Let's get this thing into the air. Uh, I kept a repair kit in like a little Molly pouch. I kind of made my own little kind of field expedient repair kit for the UAV. I had extra propellers, extra, you know, uh, buttons and nuts and screws and things. So I ripped that open and Matek and I kind of using the MRAP as what little cover we had. Uh, we repaired the UAV, uh, while we're there under fire. And then I was able to get Matek and I together, uh, to get it launched and in the air. So Matek went out he launched the second one. And I, I actually ran the, the hand controller that time. And then we got it airborne. Um, so, and kind of like I'd mentioned, you know, we talked a little bit about that last time with helicopters, but whenever anything's in the air and even whether, you know, we're talking about the Raven and using it as a disruption operation, the enemy knows when things are in the air and they don't like it. And so even if, even if it's unarmed, even if it's whatever. So once we got it up, things started to cool down just a little bit. It was very difficult on that second sortie to, um, to try to identify targets. Uh, it was now late into the midday. Uh, the Puma does have FLIR on it. It has FLIR and a, and a daytime camera. But the FLIR was nearly worthless at this point in the day. I'm trying to look down into tree lines. I'm trying to look in, you know, it's not x-ray vision. I can't look into buildings. So doing the best I can. Um, but we really couldn't positively identify any people uh, on that second sortie. We were able to try to identify kind of the tree lines that was coming from. We were able to kind of see an aerial view and actually get see the angles and see that kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, if I was, if I was the enemy, where would I be? I'd be in this tree line right here. So we were able to kind of affect the battle in that way of giving us better overhead situational awareness. Uh, and the enemy, I mean, they saw, they saw us launch it, you know, cause we, in the middle of a field, we're doing this. So they knew that we put something into the air. And so that also kind of caused things to calm down a little bit. Um, the real, uh, I, I had to bring it down and land it because we actually got, we finally got a, um, we finally got a, a B1 bomber uh, to come in and do a low pass. And um, so I had to land it for that, for just airspace deconfliction. But once I, once the B1 came in and just did a low pass, um, that really, that sealed the deal. And it was, they were done for the day. Um, shortly thereafter, uh, we had uh, the recovery elements finally started to kind of creep in. And uh, we, the, the wreckers and the, the QRF kind of got there and helped us out. And then we were able to... Um, we were able to hook up the MRAP and, and get out of there without too much more going on the rest of the day. You know, one of the themes that has sort of come up uh, time and again in episodes of The Spear that I've had the chance to re to record um, is that within a single combat event, there can be sort of multiple ways of experiencing it, even for a single participant in that event. Um, maybe a better way of putting it is that there can kind of be multiple experiential phases. Um, I don't know if that's a better way of putting it or just a more pretentious way of putting it. But I think your story provides a really good example of this because there's a period when the Puma's in the air and you're flying it. There's another period when the Puma's on the ground and you're just pulling security. And then there's a period where you're sort of frantically trying to get the vehicle back up in the air. I wonder sort of from your perspective, um, how your experience of that event changed 
you know, when there's a task at hand that's closely associated with your purpose for being out there, um, flying the, the, the Puma or getting it back up in the air, were you more focused? Was there more or maybe less adrenaline coursing through your body? Were you more or maybe less fearful during those times? Um, if, if anything, and especially compared to prior, um, engage, like as an Apache pilot, I would say in some ways it was more fearful. It definitely, my entire time in the BAE, all these patrols I went on gave me such a wonderful respect for the customer on the ground. So I, I had been an Apache pilot. I'd worked with infantry. I've worked with the armor. I've worked with all these guys. I've been in firefights and I've helped bail them out, you know, or whatever. And, but you're still kind of detached from it unless you've done that in a previous life. I, I just did it in reverse. Normally guys go infantry and then they put in and go to flight school. I uh, went to flight school, did that deployment and then i went to go work with them so I, I earned a whole new level of respect for what they were going through um instead of just okay i see see tracers in the apache i'd see something i like i could hear bullets cracking past me and i was like okay this is this is different you know this is not that not that my time in the apache was any less real but you, you i really had a new sense of how real it was um but being an apache pilot definitely prepared me for that in the whole uh and how I task managed, uh, compartmentalized, uh, okay, let's set the fear aside. I know I got a mission to do, you know, and just kind of stay very extremely focused on, okay, what's next? How do I maintain situational awareness? How do I, um, cause even though I was with the maneuver element, I think I still detached myself a little bit in the sense of, okay, well, I'm the dude flying this thing. How do I, how do I affect, uh, how do I affect the fight? How do I help them out? And so I still kind of thought of them as a customer that I was supporting. Uh, even though I was, I just happened to be with them. Um, and there was, there was days like different missions. We would, I would try different ways of setting up the ground control station. Some days uh, we'd set up like a little, like a traditional OP and I'd have like the fire support officer and a sniper and maybe or like a forward observer. And like three of us would find like an old, uh, you know, burned out grape hut and we'd set up our ground control station there. Um, so I definitely experimented and uh, toyed with different ways of bringing that UAS capability to the fight and saw what worked most effectively and uh, saw what didn't work. Okay. Um, you know, I find it really interesting that you talk about uh, the infantry soldiers as, as the customer. Um, you know, you're, you're part of the same unit. You wear the same unit patch. Heck, you're going on patrol with them, and yet you think of them as, as the customer. And, you know, your time in the BAE sounds like it was impactful. It sounds like it was, you know, successful. And I, I would imagine that that sort of approach, that perspective of of the infantry soldiers being the customer, uh, is part of that. Are there is there anything else that you think really contributed to um, your success in that role? Um, so I think what made me personally successful in the BAE was the uh, the freedom of maneuver that I got from my my supervisors and my chain of command. Um, nine times out of 10, I'd go to my boss and I'd say, Hey, I got, I got this idea. I got this project I want to do, or I want to go do this, or I want to go do that. Um, and after it, it took a few months to kind of, to prove myself and to earn that. But once I, once I achieved that, they, they really just let me run with whatever I want. They're like, Hey, you got the, you already got the ball. You already halfway planned this thing. So just run with it. And maybe that was setting up a range, um, like a UAV range and, and, tasking out uh, parts of the brigade to come support that 
or maybe it was a project uh, to acquire new UAS. I was always trying to get like the latest and greatest technologies, working with the, the PM shop. And so they, nobody really impeded my ability to do that. Uh, I, I had a fantastic time on the BAE. Uh, I've recommended it to people before, but I also, I caveat it with, you know, experiences may vary. I know guys that went to the BAE and hated it. They hated every moment of it because their chain of command basically stuck them in that talk. And they worked on the brigade staff the whole time and they were not allowed to do anything else. Um, so what really set it apart for me was that fantastic leadership uh, that I had above me, the captain, the major, uh, and, and all the way up to the brigade commander, um, them allowing me to, to be me, to be that warrant, to be that tactical, technical expert, and then to bring what I could to the fight. You know, the BAE sits in kind of a unique spot. It's an enabler, uh, also part of the brigade staff. Um, from that vantage point, are there any other lessons that you'd like to share that that maybe you derived from uh, from that experience and from the successes that the BAE had um, and the successes that the, that the brigade as a whole had? So uh, I think what made the BAE successful and honestly the brigade as a whole successful was um, the people, those junior to mid-grade leaders as junior officer, company grade officers, uh, and, and, and NCOs, uh, being conduits, being advocates, um, for their respective section. So, you know, private Smith can go do something excellent with the, the unmanned system, but if there's nobody to be a vessel and to carry that message higher, if nobody does a storyboard about it, uh, if nobody puts, uh, people in for awards even, uh, then their achievements, their accomplishments, they stay in a vacuum. They stay in a bubble uh, down there at the squad and platoon level. Uh, and while they might get, you know, accolades from their peers, you know, those are really the things we want to capture and we want to elevate um, so that others can learn from it, so that it can become, it can be developed into TTPs. It could, you know, make it into doctrine uh, or that when people uh, do something that's worthy of recognition that, you know, we can actually get them recognized, um, appropriately uh for their achievements uh and that's what i what i think we had a really good team uh you know between the major the captain myself uh and then some of the the company battalion leadership i think we did a, a fantastic job uh as an organization in capturing the things that we were doing uh documenting it and then passing it along um so that others uh, could benefit from it as well sure you know what about what about the way we use small UASs? Given this operational experience that you have, um, you know, I wonder if you have any ideas about the way that we employ these vehicles, um, and and you know, and also the the way we manage the community of um, the fairly dispersed community of people uh, who fly them. So, one thing that's uh, one thing that was kind of troublesome to me, and, and so I talked about you know you want to be an advocate. Um, so I, I, I fought for, for the two years I was there and I still even try to do some work on it is that, uh, one of the problems that we're having, and, and I've talked to, I still stay in touch with some uh, UAS guys uh, here at West Point, even, um, uh, down, a, down the, down the road at Camp Smith, the national guard guys, um, the small unmanned system community or the, the small UAS community, uh, it's not an SQI. It's not even an ASI, an additional skill identifier that it gets attached to your MOS, you know? So we have these 18 year olds, you know, they're 11 Bravo and they're taking on, because as I said, if you're, if you're doing it properly, 
you know, they're supposed to be getting annual evaluations. There's, they get a lot of extra things added to them, very much like a, a helicopter pilot. Uh, and I'm not saying that it's the same level of responsibility, but, you know, they still have to remember emergency procedures and they have to, they have to go through a lot of these aviation kind of centric things, but we don't even give it an, an ASI. And like I said, I'm not trying to say they should be getting flight pay or, you know, getting a crew member badge or anything like that. But right now the army does nothing uh, to elevate it. You know, no, it's, I remember we rolled into the brigade. We were trying to identify who was an opera, who was a UAV operator. You know, I had to get basically get, Put out a message to all the first sergeants to kind of look at their formation, and say, "Hey, how many of y'all know how to fly a Raven?" Because with no ASI attached to their MOS at the brigade, I couldn't even do a scrub and just look to see who was qualified, and and that really made it difficult at the brigade level. As as I was trying to build up a program, as I was trying to identify people, um, you know, those those functions aren't even there. And I've I'd talked to guys throughout the years at different levels. Um, from the schoolhouse uh, down at Benning. And, and they're like, yeah, you know, it's just, I, I think kind of bringing this full circle to the beginning, I think because of some of the stigma, nobody really takes the UAV, the small UAV community seriously, or they don't take it seriously enough that they don't uh, kind of put the attention that they need to on this. The other side of that coin is if they wanted to start adding things like that, then the, the maneuver units likewise need to step it up and make sure that all their programs are kind of locked tight you know if you want more of that recognition in the kind of aviation side of the house then uh, they need to have commensurate responsibility of to making sure the programs are good but that was something i kind of fought for too was uh, or i tried to uh was to try to make sure that uh the community was getting enough tension that it deserved and um and not just as a kind of rapid fielding initiative uh, because oh we need this in afghanistan but try to have a sustainable program. So when they get back to garrison. Well, Dylan, I think we will, we'll leave it there. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on the spear uh, for a second time and sharing a story uh, that, you know, is, is, is unique. It's a unique experience, unique perspective. One that I think listeners will really appreciate uh, hearing. So, uh, so thank you for making some time and, and sharing it. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.